Welcome back, rich girls and boys, to The Money with Katie Show. I'm your host, Katie Gaddy Tossan, and boy, do I have a fun one for y'all today. Can I just say that no matter what happens in the future, going down this path of small business acquisition has been so fun to explore. Like, I feel like I was starting to feel a little bit stagnant, if you will, in my financial path because I had mostly achieved the major things that I wanted to achieve and my stock market strategy was more or less just set it and forget it. I had already explored the whole real estate thing and realized, all right, this is a big not right now for me with current valuations. And there didn't seem to be much else to learn out there that didn't feel like a Forex scheme. So diminishing returns, I guess, is the point that I'm trying to get at. I felt like I was reaching the point of diminishing returns with some of the research I was doing. So enter another content creator named Cody Sanchez. I started following Cody's stuff a few months ago, but I really started paying attention after I noticed her Twitter threads on buying boring businesses. And I was like, huh, this is interesting. One podcast interview that she did, by the way, I listened to pretty much every interview she's ever done. I just Googled her name in the podcast app and just went down the line. But one in particular really sealed the deal for me. She basically said, hey, what does everyone say about 2008, 2009, 2010? They say, man, I wish I would have bought more real estate because everything was in foreclosure. It was so cheap. Deals were just everywhere. And people didn't really know about rental property investing yet. Like, obviously, some people were doing it, but it wasn't super widespread and common. Now, fast forward 12 years, you're going to have a pretty difficult time finding a super good deal that's going to easily cash flow in desirable parts of the country. And she was like, I'm not trying to tie up $50,000 in capital to make 300 bucks a month. And I was like, oh my God, this woman is speaking my language because that had always been my beef with real estate too after we looked into it in my area where even if I could find a nice duplex in my area for under a million dollars, I would be mostly breaking even every month on the monthly payments. Like the margins were so paper thin that one major repair would have wiped out literal years of profit. And it didn't really feel worthwhile to me if I could just stick that same amount of money in the stock market and do 7 to 8% per year returns on average over time for doing nothing. She mentioned, though, that now, aka 2022, is for small businesses what 2010 was for real estate. The unfortunate and kind of heartbreaking reality is that the pandemic put a lot of small businesses through the ringer. And there are hundreds of thousands, that's truly the number, hundreds of thousands of boomer business owners who are trying to retire because honestly, they're just tired. They're over it. So she starts comparing buying a business to buying real estate. And she's like, you know, you'll see a house on Zillow. A house on Zillow that's listed at a good price is going to sell in two days. Some of these businesses are listed on websites like Biz Buy, Sell, and Flippa for a year before anyone buys them. So the TLDR is that there's a lot more opportunity in buying cash-flowing, boring small businesses because it is so much less popular than other types of investing. So there's less competition fighting over the opportunity. And the whole thing to me kind of had this aura of this is like the best-kept secret in investing. And I was sold. So (laughs) immediately, 
I hop on Biz by Sell, and within 10 minutes, I find a cleaning business near me that seemed to have pretty great margins. To be clear, I had no idea what the metric fuck I was doing, but I did know enough of the buzzwords from studying real estate investing to be able to paint a tenable picture for myself. So to kind of give you the high-level assessment of the deal for this particular business, they wanted $250,000 for the business. And in small business acquisition, you can take out what's called an SBA loan from the government. It's from the Small Business Administration. So you put down something like 10% and then you finance the other 90% with the SBA. There's also something called seller financing, but that's a little more complicated. So we're not going to spend too much time on that today. But anyway, I'm doing the math in my head and I'm like, okay, 10% down on 250K is $25,000. So let's pause for a second for a helpful comparison. What could $25,000 on a property get you? A property worth 125K if you're putting down 20% to avoid PMI, assuming you're gonna live in one half of it. Now, if you're just buying the property to rent it out to somebody else and it's not gonna be owner-occupied, you typically have to put down 25%. So really, you could get a you know, a house worth $100,000 with $25,000. You can use 25K to control a 100K property. But anyway, they claimed that they had about $60,000 in EBITDA or earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. Their gross revenue, though, was around $350,000 a year. But after paying everyone, including their owner operator and buying supplies, yada, 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 it meant they were getting about $60,000 in profit every year. So I have literal dollar signs in my eyes at this point. I'm like, wait a second, 25,000 down to make 60,000 in profit in year one? That means you make back your initial investment in less than six months. The owner was only paying herself 40,000 per year, but then basically expensing like everything. So she told me she probably spent about $3,000 a month on like personal vehicles and food in addition to the 40,000 that she was paying herself. So call it closer to a $76,000 salary for her plus $60,000 in additional profit. So we're talking 136K total. Okay, so you put down 25K, and then your net profit year one estimated 136K. So this sounds like the best thing since sliced bread, right? Like I would be on cloud nine, ready to give it a whirl, hook, line, and sinker. But there was one aspect of this business that really remained, how do we say, a thorn in my side. Something that made me fear getting caught up a creek without a paddle, other idioms. So we'll get to that after the break. So hold your horses because good things come to those who wait. Welcome back. Okay, I won't beat around the bush anymore. And yes, I will stop with the idioms. Anyway, after calculating $136,000 in profit for the cleaning business, the deal looked great. So what was the issue? Well, the owner was running the business. She was very, very involved day to day. And she told me, you know, I probably do four hours of work a day on it, which in my mind, I'm like, well, damn, I mean, four hours of work a day to make $136,000 a year is pretty great if you're trying to buy yourself a job, but that's not what I wanted. I didn't want to buy myself a job. I wanted to buy myself a cash flowing business. So I wanted an operator, but let's double down on the numbers for a second, because assuming you can find an operator, 
If I can put $25,000 to earn $136,000 net profit year one minus loan payback, so call it closer to $110,000, that is a 440% return on my initial investment. And I found this business on Biz Buy Sell, but I couldn't get them to respond to my interest form. So on this website, if you see a business you're interested in, you can submit your name and number and email and whatever and like a little note but they weren't getting back to me. And I was kind of obsessively thinking about this. So I got a little bit creepy because they don't tell you the name or the owner of the business. So I used the details of the listing, like it said how many stars they had on Google and how long they had been in business to triangulate which cleaning company it was in my area. And then I found the owner's name on the website and then going against all of my millennial protective instincts, I called them. Yes, I picked up the phone and I called, not knowing who was going to answer. And when I tell you that I was rationally proud of myself, but this is where things got interesting though, because once I get her on the phone, I realize I don't know what to say. Like, I don't even know what questions to ask this woman. So I just decided to be honest. I said, hey, I've never bought a business before, but your numbers look great. I'm really interested in learning more. I'm not quite sure what to even ask you right now, but I was hoping we could talk about it. So she tells me she's already got another offer, but it's an offer from a more established firm and they were kind of giving her a hard time. So she tells me how many employees she has, why she's selling, how much they earned, um, how much they are earning right now, when they started, like the normal stuff. But since the prospective buyers that she was already working with were making it a little bit challenging, she did agree to meet with me anyway and show me the office space. She also sent me a few years of P&L statements, which stands for profit and loss, which arrived in the form of 12 spreadsheet attachments in an email. So I opened them one by one, basically cosplaying somebody that knows what the hell they're doing. And I'm looking at all these rows of numbers and realizing with each passing file that I had no idea what I was looking at. Like, a P&L statement is supposed to show you how profitable a business is. And I could tell they were making money, but there was so much data in these spreadsheets that it was kind of hard to make heads or tails of it. And that was about the point that I realized I was in really over my head. That feeling intensified when I saw the office space that they operate out of. There were like broken down vacuums in the corner and this messy desk and all these filing cabinets full of papers and timesheets and quote documents and bags of clean laundry and bags of dirty towels and customer information and all their scheduling software. And it kind of just hit me all at once that buying a business means you're buying an entire operation of people and history and schedules and tax liability and like general liability. And it just freaked me out a little bit. But that's kind of the point, right? Like that's why there is a risk premium to an investment of this kind, because you don't get a 440% return for opening Robinhood and buying an ETF. The barrier to entry and learning curve is so much steeper when you're buying actual businesses. And that's why it's such a huge payday from a sheer ROI cash on cash return perspective. But damn, I knew I needed to go back to the drawing board and get some key pieces in place. So I started to make a game plan. First, I knew I needed to find an accountant. I needed a CPA or a small business consultant of some kind who could guide me through this due diligence process and ensure that I was asking the right questions and that we were vetting the numbers and the tax returns correctly so that we would have a better chance at catching something that looked off. Now, 
I do think that at some point in this process, you kind of have to accept that there are always going to be things that you're not going to know until you actually buy the business. That seems to be the prevailing theme that I hear from people that do this for a living and just basically run small business acquisition, little mini holding companies. But I wasn't confident in my own ability without the help of an expert. Next, I knew I needed to build a relationship with a lawyer. Oddly enough, my oldest brother-in-law absolutely stunts on my SEC undergraduate self with his Harvard Law degree, and he is a practicing M&A lawyer, so like he does acquisitions for a living, but he deals in tech M&A with these huge companies, and I, well, I can't afford him. So I knew I wanted to find a local small business acquisition lawyer who could draw up certain requirements for me, like an LOI, which stands for Letter of an Intent, which is what you give the business owner when you want to make an offer, a term sheet for the deal, and other contractual stuff that I'm sure exists that I don't even know about. So those two things, accountant and lawyer, I started doing a ton of Googling and reaching out via the contact forms to different small business CPA and lawyers near me. I also just knew I needed to learn more. Like I would search small business buying or small business acquisition on Spotify podcasts and then listen to whatever came up, just trying to glean all the little nuggets here and there. More than anything though, I knew I needed to find the right deal, the right business at the right price. And I was fairly certain that that was not going to happen for me by finding something listed on a website like BizBuySell where it's a public market deal. So I also started looking for a broker who could help me find off-market deals or point me in the right direction by searching on Google. I've also heard that the best way to find off-market deals is by literally going into small businesses that you frequent where the owner is maybe a little bit older or you have a relationship with them already and they've let you know that they're thinking about retiring and making offers directly to them before it even goes up on a public listing site. So I ended up meeting with this broker named Gene who had listed a laundromat franchise online and we had a call to meet and kind of talk through my questions. And he told me a couple really key helpful things. The first is that when you're trying to buy a business, you need to understand what the owner's day-to-day involvement is. If you are looking at something purely as an investment opportunity, you want to find out where the owner is mostly absent. You don't want to buy yourself a job. That's the tricky thing, though, and why these deals are so hard to find, because if the owner is totally absent and just sitting on the sideline making a shit ton of money, it is probably unlikely that they're going to want to sell because they're not going to have any incentive to, quote unquote, retire from that type of arrangement. So that's where digging in and being skeptical is important. That question of like, hey, tell me what your day-to-day is like. How involved are you? If you were to go away tomorrow, what type of stuff would start falling through the cracks? Also, if you can just find someone that truly is just trying to retire that wants to walk away altogether, that's probably the best sign. The second thing that he told me to remember is that in small business situations where the clientele feel loyalty to the owner, you're probably going to experience a drop-off in business at first. You want to plan for that. He said that's why investing in a small business on the side as an investment and not as like a job that's going to become your primary source of income is really smart because it means you can go a few months without any real profit. The last thing that jumped out at me when we were talking was, 
He told me you want to ask for three years of P&L statements and tax returns to see if you can reconcile the two and get a good sense of where the money is actually going and coming from. This is the part where I would personally want to involve a CPA who specializes in small business acquisition because I am frankly not confident in my own ability to not miss stuff. So this guy, Gene, he's a broker, which means if I were to buy something with his help, he will get a cut. And that's okay with me for a first deal because I really want to learn the ropes. I need to learn the ropes. I want to work with someone who has done this before. And I think that's why finding a consultant or broker was important to me. That's not necessarily something you would have to do, but I think for my comfort level, I wanted to have somebody that could kind of handhold me through it. But to really drive home the point of why I think this is worth the time and effort, because you might be like, damn, this sounds really challenging. That same day I saw the cleaning business, I went to see a duplex as well as a potential rental property investment opportunity. And I thought, man, like surely this could be a good opportunity. And Oh, I want to use another idiom. Don't do it, Katie. Don't do it. Don't do it. But you got to play your cards right. Oh, dang. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Okay, so this time I think I finally got it all out of my system. So to reiterate, the same day that I saw the cleaning business, I went to see a duplex as a potential investment opportunity in my area. Now, the duplex was listed at $500,000 and it needed about $100,000 of work to be up to the standards of something that I would feel comfortable either living in one side of or renting out to other people. So I worked with my agent in town who is also a real estate investor and he told me, hey, I've got a contractor that could renovate, you know, gut and renovate this whole place for 100K. So let's say you put 50,000 down, aka 10%, and then you dump another $100,000 worth of work into it. Okay, now you're 150K in the hole. The rental income on that property was estimated to be about $3,400 a month for both sides the loan repayment, taxes, and insurance would be about $2,300 per month. So call it $1,100 per month in profit or $13,000 roughly per year. Now, again, that's not including maintenance or capital expenditure. That's just like that is the most you're going to make based on the costs that you're already aware of. So that is a return on my initial cash investment of $150K of 8%. Now, I can get that fairly reliably over time in the stock market, and it really illustrated for me the opportunity gap here. Rental property investing in areas like the one where I live, where the price-to-rent ratio is high, sees margins that are getting smaller and smaller, especially in competitive markets where the homes are very expensive and the rents in the area have not yet caught up. Now, there are other benefits of rental property investing, like the depreciation that you can write off for your taxes and the appreciation of the property over time. Like, there are certainly things that I'm not really taking into account right now, but that 
illustration of just the initial cash on cash return in year one and the major difference between an 8% return and a 400% return, I think really sealed the deal for me that small business acquisition is super interesting. Again, that's not to say that people do not make a killing in real estate. They absolutely can and do. But when it comes to the arbitrage opportunities that are out there, it seems to me there is way more arbitrage potential in small business acquisition than in real estate in 2022. So I think the broader theme that I'm trying to highlight here, though, is more about the unconventional approaches to investing, unconventional earning opportunities, like straying from that conventional path. And by conventional path, I mean the traditional one that we are all fed growing up. You do well in school, you go to college, you get a good job, you get married, you buy a house, you have kids, in that order. Nowhere in my adult handbook did I read anything about scoping investment opportunities in my community or deploying capital for outsized returns. So I must have either missed that chapter in the book of life or maybe it, does, it doesn't exist, but that's why I really wanted to introduce y'all to my friend Sarah Becker, who absolutely blew me away when we first met a couple months ago. So her story about buying a commercial property in her neighborhood when she was 24 made me feel like at 27, I am so far behind, but it is very inspiring. So to be fair, this is more so about real estate and less about buying a small business, but because she turned the commercial space into a business, I think the mindset that she had going into this was so compelling and helpful. So that's where we're going to focus. So Becker, welcome to The Money with Katie Show. And thank you so much for being here today. Oh my gosh, of course. I can't believe we've come from me, you know, begging you to chat with me. And now I'm on your podcast. I mean, this is very exciting. This is a banner day for me. Oh my God. Begging is a strong word. You're initially- It's very strong. You were- <laughs> Your email, you were just like, hi, I would love to chat. And you sounded so interesting. And I was like, you know what? Let's do it. So a few months ago, we first met, you sent me this email. You want to kind of chat about business. And we ended up on this Zoom call that effectively derailed within the first 15 minutes because <laughs> you were telling me a story about this dilapidated building in your neighborhood. And most people, including me, would see a falling apart commercial space and think, oh, what an eyesore. That's so annoying. They need to knock that down and build a sweet green. But that's not what you thought. So can you tell us the story about this space in your neighborhood? Yes, absolutely. So I truly started from exactly your standpoint. I was like, what is this thing? It's not unusual in New Orleans to live next to a blighted property. Y'all mm -hmm. might have heard of Hurricane Katrina. We went through it. And there are a lot of properties that never got rebuilt. So when mm -hmm. I was 23, I moved into my rental, and it was right next to like a very large two-story, about 6,000 square feet, like dilapidated building. Couldn't really tell what it was, what was in it. And it was a huge lot. It was three key lots set together. <laughs> and it became kind of a magnet for a lot of criminal activity. And since I was working from home, running my own business, I was seeing that stuff happening over and over again, all hours of the day. And because it became such a problem, it was honestly like some creative problem solving that even led me to try to purchase the property because the owner was out of state and he had bought the property at auction. And I don't even think he'd ever visited. Oh my gosh. And then in New Orleans, we have quality of life officers and stuff like that. And they weren't interested in helping me. So I ended up complaining via like we have a blight report in New Orleans, which again, I think is unique to us because of our situation. So I ended up complaining about the property 
You could fill out a report every 72 hours. So like I set an alarm on my phone and every 72 hours I would be like, yes, the grass is overgrown. Yes, people are living in the backyard. Oh, yes, like my I God. view criminal activity. We moved into the house like mm, September, October. And when I was out of town for Christmas, the inspector came by and not only did he say like, yes, all these things are a problem. We're going to find the owner. He also multiplied it by how many times I had complained. And since I complained so many times, it was like, I mean, I think a fifteen to $20,000 like fine situation. And so oh. by, <laughs> so by the time I got in touch with the owner, he was motivated to sell. Oh my God. <laughs> I'm like, this is just your friendly neighborhood light extortion. Just a little, a little touch of extortion. Let me just complain enough time so that this owner wants to get the hell out of this deal. I mean, that's what happens when he blocks my number. You know, I'm like, I tried, sir, and you don't want to talk to me. Um, he told me I should move to a better neighborhood. And I was like, you know, I'm not doing that. Okay, so it starts as, like, complaint and frustration and you getting this, like, yes. bee in your bonnet and thinking, okay, I'm My bonnet was full of bees. Full yes. of bees. Beehive bonnet. So you're yes. like, I'm going to do something about this. But when did it transition from, like, you just wanting the city to fix it to, oh, I'm now viewing this as, like, a business opportunity? Okay, so I have a little bit of an obsessive personality, if you haven't already gathered. And so every 72 hours as I was complaining about this house, like I would wake up thinking about it. And my bedroom looked out onto it. And literally, Katie, one morning I woke up and the sun was rising and my window was open. And I was like, you know what? This is actually a really great property. I just hate it because of what's <laughs> happening to it. And I actually, has my hatred turned to love? And it it had. And I was like, how, how am I going to make this happen? Like, this is just such a shame. This beautiful house is just sitting here. And so I had not even met my landlord at the time because he had a property manager that dealt with the rentals. Hmm. But he had just bought the house I was living in and renovated it. So I reached out to him and I was like, look, is there any chance you'd be interested in doing this? but on a bigger scale because mm -hmm. I have some money, but I had just turned 24. I was married at the time and putting my then husband through grad school, cash only, paying cash, building my business. Um, I did have set aside about $40,000. I had been pretty aggressively saving just for, you. for something. And so when this came up, I was like, you know what? I have been super disciplined in saving this money. Like, what, what is that What is that phrase that's like, opportunity is when luck and planning come together. It was ah, just like everything yes. was coming together. And uh, my landlord was like, yeah, I would be interested. And so that's how we did it. We did it together. And then we brought in a third partner who had a little more experience with the commercial side of things. Interesting. So what questions were you asking at the time? Like, how did you learn enough to get over the feeling of not knowing what you're doing? Because you weren't a commercial real estate developer. You were no. not a real estate investor. Was it that you were bringing in people like your landlord and this other person that kind of knew what they were doing? And you were like, all right, show me the ropes. You know, yes and no, because they were like, hey, yeah, we have this money, but we're really busy. So like, if you hmm. can come up with a good plan and like figure it out, we can kind of do it together. But as far as the actual like project management went, you know, I live next door. So when we were renovating for the next two years, I was the person over there every day. 
So I definitely was able to use them as a resource, but they also had never done anything quite like this before. So we were all learning. Hmm. And I really feel like I'm at my best when I'm learning. I don't see failure as an ending. You know, I see it as a redirection. So I just felt like I will keep moving forward with this crazy idea until there are too many red flags or too many closed doors. Like I need to make a change. But a lot of times, like the obstacles we had were just, do we swear on the podcast? We sure do. Okay, so Glennon Doyle calls this another fucking growth opportunity in AFCO. And I'm in like, AFCO. you know what? In AFCO. I was like, were there some AFCOs? Absolutely. Like we were, we had a lot of like permits and planning and stuff, a lot of AFCOs. And literally, I was just literally meeting with like everyone who would meet with me. So I knew an architect. I was like, can I take you to lunch? You know, I knew someone who was doing something similar, but in a different city. And I was like, could you hop on a phone call? So I didn't have any experience in real estate at the time, but I did have like a very open mind, a big work ethic. I didn't fear being wrong or having to admit that. And I just asked questions, questions, questions. And people love sharing what they're experts in. They love telling you what they know. So to recap, open mind, not afraid of failure, asking lots of questions. I really want to drill down in this too, because to your point, it's not like you brought in two partners and then it was just smooth sailing and everyone else is doing everything and you're just putting up this little bit of capital that you have, which by the way, another thing I want to kind of highlight here is you didn't know what you were saving that money for, but because you had been saving for something, question mark, when the opportunity presented itself, you were in a good position to seize it. So when we're talking about mindset, and I want to use the words imposter syndrome because I think as I was going through the small business buying experience, I felt at every turn that sense of imposter syndrome. Like, who do I think I am? I don't even know what questions to be asking. I want to learn more about your mindset at the time and was there any point at which the confidence waned or you felt like, okay, I think this is the end? That's a good question. I have a two-part answer. The first thing is, you know, when you say, I don't even know what questions to ask, I would always start with, what did you wish you knew when you were where I am in your process? And then what resources helped you? Like, what books did you read? You know, that's an example. There were not a lot of books for me to read in this specific thing. But it was like, every time I met with someone, they would be like, you should talk to these four or five other people. I would always ask, who else should I be talking to? And that was always a great starting point, like those open-ended questions. But secondly, absolutely. Like, when you were successful, especially as a young woman, middle-aged men are going to come for you. They're going to come tell you, the audacity you have to even think you can do this. And I will say that fortunately, both of my partners were middle-aged men who truly like empowered me Aww. to handle this and they trusted me and they knew I could do it. But I had a man in my friend circle literally ask me to go to coffee to sit me down and say, I think you are an egotistical idiot for thinking that you can do this. You have no idea what you're doing. It's embarrassing. Like you're embarrassing all of us basically. <gasps> Oh, my God. Got in my car, and I cried like a little girl that I was. And now, you know, eight years later, I realize that people project their insecurities onto you. That was a projection of this man coming for me. And I have been able, through a lot of therapy, to build a mental wall in between me and people like that because it literally has nothing to do with me. And I also think that 
navigating all of these things because I had such an open mind. I never pretended to know what I was doing. Mm. I always said, this is my first time doing this. So I would love any advice you have, any wisdom you have. And also being flexible is key because I can't tell you how many things like when we, oh, when we first bought it, we were like, there's so much property. Maybe we could get shipping containers and make tiny houses. Well, you know, shipping containers are actually very toxic. It's very expensive to remediate them. You know, like we went through so many different iterations of ideas for this space. You know, from the time we purchased it, it was two years after that we opened. And then four months after that, we had a flood and we flooded three feet downstairs and half of it was gone. So then, you know, it wasn't even just like we opened and then it was smooth sailing. It was, there's always going to be an AFCO. (laughs) Shout out Glennon. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Wow. So how did that project net out? So you went through these different iterations. Mm -hmm. It sounds like lots of twists and turns, pivots happening. How did it net out? What is it now? So right now, it's an eight-suite guest house. So each suite has like a little living room, like kitchen. We get a lot of people who come in for bigger projects in New Orleans. You know, maybe they're filming something. You know, after Hurricane Ida in August, we had a bunch of linemen staying there as they were coming to repair our electrical lines, which we're very appreciative. Shout out to linemen. Um, So it's thriving now, which is so exciting to see because we opened spring 2017. August 2017, we had the flood. It took us a year to renovate the downstairs, and we did it, you know, better. We we did brick walls with weeps, so if it flooded again, the water would come out. You know, we did a lot of things hmm. to try to make it more sustainable. Um, and since then, it's just been rolling. Now, of course, we had the pandemic. So as far as, like, how it netted out financially for me and for my other partners, we were able to take an owner draw the first year. Since then, we have been profitable, but we have not drawn out any money. We have kept all the money in there. The pandemic kind of scared us a little bit, you know, mm. our, our mortgage is significant. So we have a good bit of savings in the account, but the, you know, we're in the black for sure. The property is doing really well. Wow. That is amazing. Do you have long-term plans for it aside from keeping it rolling as is? So for the first two years that we were open, I did all the day-to-day management. So I did all the guest management. Like, I really wanted to understand exactly how this was going to run. So I handled the cleaning staff, and I bought towels, and, I, you know, all this different stuff. Wow. And then at the end of those two years, I was like, okay, this was great but exhausting because you're on call 24-7. I was like, it's time for me to start something new, which means I need more energy and more time. So one of my other partners has a property management company. He took it over. So we were always talking about like, we had ideas like, oh, could we put a brewery downstairs? Could we do this? Could we do that? Should we sell? I mean, we are still talking through all of those things. We're about to hit five years of owning it, which is crazy. It feels like we just did it yesterday. So I think, honestly, we probably would have had a more detailed plan if the pandemic hadn't happened because that shifted everything. But I'm still so grateful that we have this amazing property. And I'm excited to see what ends up happening with it. Wow. Sarah, thank you so much for being here today. Oh, my gosh. You're so welcome. Thank you for having me. This was so fun. Now, my main takeaway from chatting with Sarah the first time was opportunity is all around you. And it's almost like I needed someone to give me that type of permission, like look for those unconventional opportunities and then make moves, take action. Stuff probably is not going to just fall into your lap. But the truth is, most people don't know what they're doing. Most people are just figuring it out for themselves as they go. So don't let feeling like you don't know what you're doing dissuade you from trying, right? And the crazy thing, though, is that 
it doesn't seem to be all that hard for the types of returns that you can get. Like it's harder than just opening an app and clicking a few buttons and investing in an ETF. But in a matter of weeks, mind you, I got a broker. I almost made an offer on one company. I felt like I knew what I was looking for. I learned a lot of jargon. Like there was a lot of progress that was made in not that much time. And sometimes I think about the fact that I spent eight years of my life in high school and college learning about Pythagorean's theorem and writing press releases. And it just contextualizes the fact that spending a few weeks listening to podcasts, researching online, reaching out to accountants, lawyers, brokers, making those connections and putting out feelers for deals is basically nothing by comparison. And I definitely did not get 440% returns on the time I spent in physics class. I probably spent a collective 20 hours over a few weeks doing this and went from knowing absolutely nothing to feeling like I knew enough to ask the right questions. So yeah, I think sometimes it just comes down to approaching things a little bit differently. Another thing that jumped out at me was the importance of having a network. Even if you're just reaching out to people for discovery calls or like letting your immediate circle know what you're trying to do, those connections are vitally important and you never know where an opportunity is going to come from. That brings me to my next interview today, a woman named Stephanie Boldrini, or Steph for short. So Steph is a successful storage industry investor, and she worked her way up from the bottom of the corporate food chain like started with nothing and worked her way up. Very inspiring. So pay attention to her answers about her network and how she built connections and learned. I think it's pretty powerful. She also digs into a few specific types of boring businesses that she owns, like car washes and self-storage, and digs into why she likes and does not like them. I am Stephanie Bodrini, and I'm based out of San Francisco, California, and I am a real estate investor in commercial properties. Amazing. Steph, thanks so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me, Katie. Would you mind telling the listeners, you know, where you're from, how you got to the U.S., and and kind of your path, figuring it out for yourself? Sure. So I'm originally from Brazil, and I've been um, in the Bay Area for just over 20 years. I got here by blessing from God. Uh, My mom met my stepfather, (laughs) Um, back in the online chat rooms back in the day, and he decided to marry her. They met when she was here studying, and uh, the rest is history. Yeah, arrived here at 18 and just started working and also went to college to San Jose State. Didn't have a ton of money, so I had to stay local. Awesome. That's, I think, probably pretty common for people. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't take out a ton of loans. Okay, great. So yes, stayed local, went to college. Yeah, so when you say you were working, like what did that entail? Well, the first job was, you know, a Mervyn's Blockbuster, just those basic college jobs. And uh, then ended up doing loans back in the day, right before 2008. Oh my gosh, really? Some good money there. (laughs) But then things started to fall apart. (laughs) Yeah. So tell me about that. Tell me about things falling apart. Absolutely. The entire industry was falling apart. So it was pretty clear that I had to do something else. And I remember being at the mortgage office, chatting with a friend online. And I said, I'm looking for a job. And he said, oh, you should come work where I am working. And that's how I got my very first sales job. Couldn't even negotiate, obviously. I was just out of college. I accepted whatever they were giving me. That's how I started my sales career here in, uh, in Silicon Valley. Oh my gosh. Wow. Okay. So just for the audience, can you tell us a little bit more when you say your sales career, 
What were you selling then? Is it the same thing you're selling now? No. At that time, that, that company was selling voice over IP, so it's phone over the internet, so Skype and things like that, but for businesses. I remember one of my very first jobs uh, at Blockbuster. I was just working because I was getting paid to work. And I remember that that was not normal uh, for other people <laughs> that were working there. You know, you get promoted pretty quickly. But in my mind, I was getting paid to work. So I'm, of course, I'm going to work and work hard and do my best. Uh, and so I think that mentality is what helped uh, growing my career. I'm a firm believer that anyone can be, do, and have anything that they want in this country. That's a beautiful sentiment. When we started this conversation, you said, okay, you know, I'm in commercial real estate. But, you know, you just said you did phone over the internet sales. So bridge the gap for me. How did we get from there to here? Yeah. Just by being in Silicon Valley, you want to start a startup. So at that time, I, I wanted to start something and quit my job. And it was an incredible, humbling experience that really makes you so much stronger and your skin becomes this thick and nothing can hurt you, <laughs> as you probably know, Katie. And uh, it didn't work out, but it was a phenomenal experience. And I would recommend anyone to try their best. And so we made a few mistakes and um, on to the next one. And then I was dating a real estate investor who um, was teaching me about real estate. And it was very clear that real estate was a really good form of investment, at least compared to angel investing that I was starting to do at that time. Because you can leverage your money, you know, with 100K, you can buy 500K worth of property versus investing in a startup, 100K, you get that and so much risk. It's very hard to get it right as an angel investor. And then also you get a piece of real estate, which <laughs> is tangible and similar to the stock market, right? You cannot leverage 100K. You, you have, with 100K, you buy 100K worth of stocks. Um, and then you get the tax depreciation and a few other things. And that's how I got into real estate investing. And so when was that? That was three years ago. Three years ago. Wow. Oh my gosh. So things have gone really quickly for you, it seems. <laughs> it doesn't seem from this end. <laughs> I was like, from your side, it probably doesn't feel like it's going very fast. But from the outside looking in, I'm like, damn, she's like really taken off. A couple of things stuck out to me about what you just said. The one thing that I'm th kind of through line of your story that I'm picking up on is how intelligently you leverage your network. Like, you know, in little pieces, you know, I'm just picking up on like, oh, well, I like told this friend that I was looking for a job or like, oh, I like, you know, was dating somebody that like taught me about this. And so I just kind of want to highlight that for the listener that relying on your network and like building relationships with people and kind of putting out there what you're trying to do, it can be really impactful. Is there anything else you'd want to add to that? Uh, being very persistent. Yeah, when I was looking for a job after my startup failed, I remember I really wanted to work at LinkedIn and had this amazing interview. I did a beautiful presentation that they didn't even ask for, and they said no. <laughs> I was crying in my room uh, at MongoDB. They said no to me again for the first job that I applied, and I said, no, <laughs> I really want a job here. And that goes for sales, that goes for anything that you do in your career even now, following up with people, following up with properties, um, they are not going to be following up with you uh, as crazy as this sounds. You have to be a professional. You have to uh, work with professionals and really do the follow-up, follow-up, follow-up. I love that. That is so important. 
The one thing that's interesting to me too about real estate is that, and about you in particular, is that so many of the people that I talk to, they're residential real estate investors. They invest in things that they're going to rent out to tenants. And so the commercial side of things feels very foreign to me. And I would imagine it's probably pretty foreign to our listeners as well. So you know, kind of at a high level, if somebody like me who had never done that before or somebody listening to this is like, man, that does sound like what she's describing sounds really interesting. What are some ways that somebody can start to educate themselves about commercial real estate if they don't necessarily have any connections in the industry? Or like, how would you recommend somebody kind of get started if they're ready to like put the work in? So if you want to do it full time, I recommend getting a job at a commercial uh, brokerage. You'll learn a ton from everybody that is there and you'll get access to deals and potentially partner up and put your commission into the deal. So that's something you can do if you want to do full time. If you want to do it part time, you know, there's so many resources online nowadays, uh, YouTube videos, podcasts, going to conferences. Oh my goodness, I cannot state how important it is to go to conferences and meet people face-to-face and build relationships. They can help you when you have a question or a problem, and maybe you can even partner up with them on a deal in the future. So those would be the things that I would start with. That's really interesting. Okay. So on that note, if somebody's already in that stage, like let's say we've got someone that's already working for a brokerage, or maybe they are kind of dabbling in, in that information gathering phase, are you able to talk a little bit about how you think about deals, like how you're assessing them and kind of like what you like to invest in and why? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, one of the things that we um, have a a benefit um, uh, as ladies is sometimes we're a bit conservative. (laughs) So I like being conservative because I know something will happen at some point in the economy. Nobody knows when, but it's important to have that cushion. I simply analyze by the numbers, uh, the return on my money. So if it's something like it's a 20 or more percent return every single year, it's very likely that I will do that deal. So that is the main thing. However, I want to note that I recently invested in uh, some car washes and it's giving me, I think, 60 or 70 percent return on my money. Oh, now we're talking. (laughs) But I would not do it again. Oh, really? Why is that? Because it's not worth my time. Ah, uh, is it, Are you the operator? Yeah, exactly. I imagine that's like you're investing in the real estate itself as opposed to like o- owning and operating the storage unit business, if that makes sense. Like, can you kind of dig into the intricacies there, like how that works? So for self-storage, you typically buy the land and you manage the property and the, the units. A car wash, it can vary. You can own both. I do own both the business and the land, uh, which I'm hopefully will be selling very soon. But yeah, that's how it goes in those asset classes. Oh, so you are you are managing the business then for the mm-hmm. storage units? Yeah, I'm an operator. Yes. Oh, interesting. Okay, so that makes sense. I didn't realize that. But I guess it, it does kind of make sense that that's how it would work. So are, are storage units as an asset class, is that a... Uh, lower maintenance operation than a car wash? Is that why you're kind of like, "Uh, I'm not so crazy about the car wash? (laughs) Yeah, they're definitely lower maintenance. And the beauty of self-storage is that they work out in a great economy and in a recession. In a great economy, Ah. people start buying more and more things and they need storage. In a recession, they're downsizing and they need storage. It's cheaper than having a bigger place. So it's a very strong asset class. 
this is well known now within that industry. So the prices are a bit high right now, mm-hmm. but it's still, I would rather have a, 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 a business that is operating in a downturn yeah. than lose something that is giving me better returns today. It can be scary to purchase your first uh, and many, many other properties after that. I know a, a guy that has more than a billion dollars worth, in property, uh, worth of properties, and he said, yeah, I was scared signing that last deal. <laughs> and so it happens to all of us. The thing is, okay, have I done my homework? Are the numbers good? Just sign it. Sign it, have a little champagne after that, and uh, <laughs> celebrate what you did. <laughs> All right, pretty great, right? So honestly, I just appreciate the hustle in people, especially people like Becker and Steph. Not hustle culture, I think that's different, but I just appreciate people who can see opportunity and then just have the drive to go for it. I think it's such a cool way to approach your life and kind of step into the driver's seat. And I think doing unconventional things, especially unconventional investing approaches, typically will net unconventional results. So Time for an update, right? Where am I now? I am still very much in the midst of this. I have not made any offers, primarily because we're going to be moving around over the next few years, and I haven't found a business that is hands-off enough yet to where I would be comfortable, quote-unquote, running it as an absentee owner out of state. So we got really close with this lawn care company that was selling for around 150000 and they had... I think 250,000 in revenue every year, about $100,000 in net profit and roughly $100,000 worth of equipment. So it was at that point where had we purchased it and installed an operator, we probably would have made a pretty good cash on cash return, but you're opening yourself up to a lot of risk if you're going to then leave the area like we are next year, we're moving away, where if that operator quits, once you're gone, you're kind of up a creek. But The thing that was so nice about that deal and what I would highlight about that deal that made it so compelling is that it had roughly the same amount in assets that it was selling for. So technically, you could have liquidated if things went sideways and you wouldn't really have been out much money. Like There would have been some uh, loss that you would incur, but it was pretty well covered by the fact that you could have sold everything the business owned and made back most of the sale price of the business. So I am still soaking up as much information as I can. I'm still actively looking for deals, but the moving around situation is making it a little bit more challenging for us, to put it lightly. So even though some of it is starting to repeat, I cannot overstate how important it is to suss out the nuggets In every conversation, every podcast episode, every article, like there's always going to be something new to glean. And it's nice to just add those little nuggets to your collection of facts and to hone that directionality further and further. So to wrap up today, I do want to pass along something I heard in a different Cody Sanchez interview because I think it made a lot of sense. They basically asked her if she thought people should still go to college and get regular jobs. And her answer surprised me because I thought she was going to be like, no, you don't need a college degree. Just go buy businesses, whatever. But she described the optimal approach 
as going to school, getting a useful degree, and then getting a regular job where you negotiate ruthlessly for yourself. You renegotiate your salary as often as possible, minimum once a year. You optimize for the highest compensation possible and do this for about five years so you can accumulate some capital and some experience. So while you're working, you're investing in the stock market. You've got a super low barrier to entry, relatively low risk, you know the drill. And then maybe you pivot to something like rental property investing, assuming you're in an area where it makes sense and you are interested. You get a cash flowing property or two to diversify your streams of income. Maybe you add a side hustle on the side um, that has some potential upside to it, or you could foresee a future wherein you could eventually scale it up and hire someone else to run it. So Basically, in this first five years, you are accumulating capital and diversifying your revenue streams with just a little bit of elbow grease and hustle, finding a side hustle, freelancing, whatever. Then you're going to pivot to something like rentals or another source of income that you have more control over. Then once you've got some money in your pocket, you turn to more unconventional acquisitions, as she calls them, which is kind of what we're talking about here, small businesses. And obviously, you do not have to follow this path perfectly, but I think it does make a lot of sense that when you're first starting out, you really just want to be aggressively saving. Kind of the way Becker described, she didn't know what she was saving for, but she was working, saving aggressively, building up a little bit of a nest egg that she could deploy when she found the right opportunity. So buying small businesses, or as Cody calls it, micro-private equity, you start to then look for those more unconventional opportunities. And in retrospect, I think it kind of makes sense. Like, That is mostly what I've been doing up until this point. I'm 27 now, so I've been working for about five years. And I can't really imagine having the balls to plunk down 30K into a business and taking out a big loan from the government if we didn't already have low seven figures in the bank and like confidence that having that level of capital can bring that you're not doing deals that are going to bankrupt you if something goes wrong. And I do think it's accessible in different ways. She has a lot of information about this. Like even if you do not have a lot of money, different things like your time and your energy and your skills that you can leverage to get involved and make yourself very marketable in a deal, get some seller financing. So if you're really interested in this and this sounds like something that could be good for you, her name is Cody Sanchez, C-O-D-I-E. Sanchez. Her stuff is really cool, and she has a lot of content out there about it if you're interested in digging deeper. And if you're like, but I don't want to work for someone else, like remember, the experience that you gain from working for someone else can be priceless, especially if you're getting paid to learn, and then you can take those learnings with you. So yeah, I hope I'm able to share a more interesting update at some point in the next couple years that we did buy a business and we can really dive deep into the numbers and how we're finding an operator and all of that. But for now, that is where we are. I hope this episode has given you a lot to chew on. And that is it for this week. So I will see you next week, same time, same place on The Money with Katie Show. Our show is a production of Morning Brew and is produced by Nick Torres and me. Sarah Singer is our VP of Multimedia and additional editing comes from our lovely senior editor, Henna Velez. Sam Cat is our chief chaos agent who is actually pretty good for this one, just napping on the desk. And Bean Dog is our chief of woof, protecting the castle, protecting the homestead downstairs while we record. Mm-hmm.